I'm just going to start because I haven't got a good way of starting. Hi, boomers. Um, something really bad's happened. We didn't think we could, you know, just put out a normal fun time episode uh, without acknowledging it first. You might already have seen the news. Every Sonic the Comic fan has a bit of a, a cloud of misery hanging over us today because Nigel Dobbin has died, which we found out today round about lunch. This is Friday the 30th of August, the day the episode was supposed to come out. We're delaying it till tomorrow because it feels weird. Yeah, um... Comics fans in the UK probably know Nigel from uh, various things that he's worked on. He worked on a lot of 2000 AD, things like Mm -hmm. Strontium Dog. And Mm. uh, I I have learned today that he even worked on the Dark Horse Digimon comic, another of my my passions. It's uh, funny funny the way these things come around. But but the reason we are talking about him here today is because that he was one of the all-time greats uh, from Sonic the Comic. We haven't had the opportunity to talk about any of his art on this podcast yet because we simply haven't got to the issues where he joined the book yet. But uh, he would be best known as um, the artist of a long-running series of knuckle strips written by Nigel Kitching. Uh, he would co-create with with Kitching like uh, memorable characters like Doctor Zachary, and um, he he drew. Would you say, Dave, he basically drew the, the definitive knuckles? Oh, I mean, yes. And this is not a posthumous thing. Oh, People goodness, are no. always popping up and saying, you know, why did no one else do with this character what Nigel Dobbin managed to do? Because he would always draw his... He would always draw the world around knuckles oh, with this yes. fantastic sort of... I don't know... How do we describe it? Mythic mistiness. Very, the, yeah. Beautiful, well, Sonic, as we've said before, was always a painted comic, but beautiful mm. watercolour landscapes, uh, ghosts and deserts. and mm. and uh, He really made the, the the world feel kind of mystical and gigantic and He was very, the, very the perfect artist to draw something as strange and unknown as the floating island. He would also... Uh, draw various other strips for the comic as well and he, he would often just uh, worked on colors but no he drew sonic and tails and amy and but but it was his knuckles that uh, he will always be remembered for among sonic the comic fans yeah nigel dobbin yeah. Uh, passed away at the age of only 56 56 and if you met him you you know you wouldn't guess he was even 56 it's not old enough it's just not um Nigel Dobbin was the very first guest I had in mind, actually, to come on this podcast. Yeah, I remember. He, Nigel was a friend. He was someone who, as I get older and my memory of STC sort of starts to fade, and I'm, you know, I'm rediscovering a lot of it for this podcast rather than relying on memory, Nigel Dobbin changed from someone whose work I was a fan of to just someone I was a friend of. And that was, you know, down to, I think, the way he... Uh, talk to you, the, the way that he treated people. Um, he was just really, really nice. Um, me and Chris have just come back from uh, TF Nation, the extremely friendly uh, Transformers convention. The, the equivalent in comics is Thought Bubble, and he was always one of the main people we went to Thought Bubble looking forward to seeing. He would always come and find us at our table, and it was always lovely when he did. So, th- this is a, a real shock to the system. He died very suddenly... And I don't think anybody was expecting it at all. You know, there was no... He wasn't ill. So, yeah, no, this has come as a massive surprise and shock to just absolutely everybody who knew him or knew of him. And, uh, you know, it's not really any consolation, but it is nice to see that when you search his name on Twitter today, there is a very long list of people saying, like, Oh, what? 
but he was really great and nice. <laughs> um, I feel as if I've not found out yet. You know what I mean? It's it feels like I'm gonna find out in three hours' time or something, and that's you know, I guess I'll just say that um, it feels weird that we're not gonna straight away you know do a look back on all that. You know, we're going to be covering his work extensively as this project goes on. In fact. In a way, he's sort of strong-armed the two of us into continuing the project <laughs> until we get there. We have so, to get to the Nigel Dobbin issues. We've yes. got to get there. Um, so this is this is really awful, and we're honestly completely shocked and knocked for a loop by it. But um, I, I suppose I will say that Nigel didn't present himself as a grave and solemn sort of a person. He was always cheerful with us and a good laugh. And I just can't imagine a version of him where he would want anyone to stop having a nice time, especially looking back over STC. So, look, we're we're now going to run today's episode. It's been recorded for a good long time now already. And so it's going to feel like, you know, nothing's happened because when we recorded it, nothing had. But I'm sort of glad about that because, uh, it, you know, it wouldn't be appropriate to sniffle our way through something so manifestly fun as this. And I think, you know, Nigel would be annoyed if we did. So hopefully this episode can... Uh... Put a smile on your face in light of this sad news. Yes. And by the time we get to Nigel's work, we'll be ready to talk about it, I hope. There's no sensible and respectful-sounding way of ramping up to something as silly as the intro to this, in which I shout, Hey, boomers! So, uh, we dedicate the following silliness to the memory of Nigel Dobbin, and we hope that he wouldn't mind. (laughs) How's that? Hey Boomers, this is Sonic the Comic, the podcast, and you'll look back at the Sega-sational world of the 1990s and the United Kingdom's official Sega comic. We are your Humes who think we're in charge. I'm Dave Bulmer. And I'm Chris McFeely, and this episode it's time for us to take a look at issue number 9. Ooh, we've got a Wonder Boy cover here. Yes, we have. But that's far from the most notable thing about the cover of this issue. That's absolutely right. Yes, following on from last issue's cliffhanger... Stamped over the usual Sonic the Hedgehog box, we've got Robotnik Rules. Yeah, and it's where it says starring. It's not just Sonic, it's starring Sonic. So it kind of looks as if Robotnik is now the star of the comic, doesn't it? I wonder what that could mean. We'll find out. Mm. Otherwise, it's Wonder Boy's Last Stand, plus Streets of Rage, Kid Chameleon, and a mega special preview of Sonic CD. Sonic CD? I cannot Sonic wait. CD? And uh, we've got a sort of a... There's a banner at the top that says Monsters and Boys with Yeah, hair. right. That's such a weird banner, right? I remember... <laughs> I had I'd, I'd long since forgotten about it, but I remember even thinking back in the day, what a weird banner. Monsters and Boys <laughs> with Blue Hair. But there's one more thing that's interesting about this cover that I've noticed. Look under his shield. We've got a signature for Boyan Dukach, which is written yeah. in the language that he writes in. Uh, yeah, looks kind of Cyrillic. If yeah. we could speak the language that this is, it would give us an insight into how to pronounce his name. But uh... Also does categorically prove that, uh, remember, he's credited as MDJ Boyan for the actual strip. Ooh, yes. But that clearly says, although we can't read it, we can parse it as as reading Boyan M. Dukach. Uh, so yeah, um, one Shion's legs looking very stumpy in this illustration. Oh, but who among us can really talk? Well, I'm 6'4", so I'm not exactly the stumpiest legged person going. <laughs> I haven't seen your legs. They might be an extremely stumpy tall leg. Yeah, I suppose you've only seen me from the waist up, so you don't know how much of the 6'4 is above the waist. <laughs> <laughs> We've got a, a welcome screen uh, this fortnight that's mostly concerned with next issue. 
As is so often the case, yes, whenever there's a a new strip coming up, they dedicate most of their time to talking about it. That's right, and in this case, it's because the horror, the ugliness, the brutality, the lousy jokes, head for the hills because Chuck D. Head, that seriously strange star of the wonderfully weird Mega Drive game Decap Attack, is coming to STC next issue. I know it was just the company line, but in hindsight, I gain such amusement from Sonic the Comic, the official series a comic having to pretend that decap attack was a thing anybody cared about <laughs> yeah the only context i either like you know in 1993 all the way up to today the only context i ever heard of decap attack in was this comic mm. i mean i did play the game uh did I, you? I think i rented it from somewhere uh, from... but because after you heard about it in this yes, comic, a hundred percent yes and obviously consequently it's a tremendous letdown <laughs> is it well <laughs> j- just from what i gather from stc i have it down as this kind of i don't know madcap cartoony game that someone's mm. come up with that's going to have some certain amount of edge or whatever and no i understand not really just a bit of a dull old platformer yeah not but uh, it's going to become one of stc's flagship yeah titles. signature uh, signature series that's um, next time, though. And we do have a, a drawing that looks like it was done by Nigel. Yeah, that um, looks like, uh, like... At the bottom. Nigel Kitching uh, draws uh, the decap strip as well as writing it. Yes, as well as writing But this looks like a very... Uh, almost an audition piece drawing because it's not quite in the same style that he eventually draws well, the even, strip in. Well, even the earliest uh, bits of decap attack are quite different from what the mm. style would eventually evolve into. So I, I wouldn't be hugely surprised if we get to the thing and see that maybe it's just pulled from a panel. Oh, okay then. Yeah. Uh, basically, I'm I'm mostly looking at the fact that uh, you know Skull's cheeks look sort of like a normal Skull's cheeks instead of the odd sticky yeah. outy things that they became. It would develop a much harsher edge, um, yeah, more, more angular as it went on. I remember it was a bit softer when it started out. But that's next issue, because this issue we're also saying goodbye to Wonder Boy. Oh, are we? Yes, tragic, isn't it? But Megadroid does promise that he'll be back on his next trip to Ghost World, and that that's in production now, so look forward to that. In the last paragraph, meanwhile, those of you who've been chewing your nails, how can you humes chew on parts of your anatomy? Waiting for the results of STC's grand opening compo, not to mention our first freebie in STC3, the agony is over, the results of both of these items appear in this issue. Yes, I've just... That thing of how can you humes chew on parts of your anatomy really stuck with me. One of those things you've always remembered. I think it was the first time I was ever really aware that chewing your nails was weird. Oh, I was always (laughs) told not to, and yet... And yet. And yet. Yeah, but that's the thing. Who doesn't ever chew on their nails ever like i'm not talking about full-on like biting bits off yeah i, I just mean ever like a little nibble for for any reason everyone's done that also i remember being sort of caught up on the word anatomy i remember thinking like oh do nails count as anatomy well, i thought yeah. anatomy was i just... thought you were gonna say that anatomy you'd learned the word from sonic the comic i don't think so i can't think of any words i learned from sonic the comic i could definitely tell you a few words i learned from transformers but uh, oh, really yeah yeah um bar weep Ha. <laughs> um, then there's a thing that says holiday hedgehogs schools in the bournemouth pool area had hedgehogs on the brain earlier this summer a special competition to coincide with the opening of sega world which we see more about later in this issue we do um, yes it's a sega sponsored contest to draw uh, comics and pictures of hedgehogs on holiday now the prizes were presented by Chris Evans again. I, I, I yeah. almost want to say uh, friend of the show Chris Evans because I, he keeps I've, coming up so much. I've written it in my notes. I think didn't last episode, I think I called him 
unaware and unwitting friend of the comic now this time i put friend of the show yeah and it's chris evans listeners it's not captain america it's not no, that no, chris this evans is, this is chris evans at the time he was presenting the big breakfast on channel four which was a, a, yeah. a morning entertainment program so there's a good cross section there because kids would see the big breakfast when they got up before but yeah. before they went to school and um he would just be better known to parents just because your parents knew who people on television were yeah and... the big breakfast was um it was very much for all the family it was yes. something your parents and you watched but and th- indeed but... it showed the sonic cartoon well that's it Ooh. eventually it's not on yet but yes up until the big breakfast breakfast tv had been very sensible famous for everybody wearing jumpers um and it was just for your parents whereas the big breakfast was sort of like well what if we aim something at sort of you know silly people and kids and teenagers and there's puppets in it and and it it did very well and it was a lot of fun and chris evans was the the first or one of the two first presenters mm-hmm. along with gabby rosman what is it, Sean? I was wondering what's going to be here on the show tomorrow. Oh, the brand new competition Spot the Dog, of course. Well, you can win 20 tickets to a theme park, all right? Will I be outside again? Yeah. All right, then. The big breakfast tomorrow morning, 7 till 9. So perhaps that's why Chris Evans kept presenting all these things, because of his generational cross-appeal. Or maybe Sega had something on him. <laughs> he he started in kids' TV. I used to watch him on, um, oh, what was it called? I can't remember now. But he was on kids' TV before he was on The Big Breakfast, just. He's just someone who our age group not only recognised him, but it was like grown-up TV, but that we were watching. So it felt like exactly what Sega was going for, this older brother yeah, crowd. I guess. Even if, he, even if, by all appearances and all past accounts, he didn't really know what was up. Oh, he has no idea what a video game is. <laughs> no. And the other news story on here is they're trailing the second future entertainment show at uh, the Olympia in London. What I'm interested here is that uh, you have to book a ticket in advance, but if you buy a ticket for the Friday, you get a special preview to the new Disney animation blockbuster Aladdin. A uh, moment in Great. time, eh? Flying right back there. Yeah. And of course, you know, what a, what a Sega connection that would have. Yeah, exactly. This... Uh, Something about this comic, we keep finding out that everything just meshes together. We'll talk about one thing and it'll pop up in yeah, the next right. issue. People will pop up in the next issue who are all enmeshed together. And this, honestly, as you get older and you start to not be the person that pop culture is aimed at anymore, you start mm-hmm. to go like, how did I ever keep up with it all in the first place? And then we're looking through this and it's like, no, there were five people in the whole world. There were three television programs about four sports and nothing else. Yep. It was really easy to keep track of everything that was going on in those days. And that, my friends and <laughs> listeners, is the benefit of treating Sonic the Comic as a cultural artifact and not just looking back at it to look at the stories. Exactly. Bobsy the Bobcat in at number three on the Mega Drive charts. Sonic. Back to Reality, written by Nigel Kitching, with art by Richard Elson and letters by Elita Fell. Return to Mobius by the Omni Viewer, it seems things have somehow worked out okay for Sonic and friends, until a run-in with a new, more powerful breed of badnik leads to the revelation that they've been sent six months into the future. In their absence, Dr. Robotnik has successfully conquered Mobius. And though Sonic is able to liberate the Emerald Hill Village from his control, the war between the cool blue hedgehog and the mad scientist has now permanently changed. Yeah. This is it. This is essentially part two of a two-part story. And this is the 
We've talked about it before, like the first leveling up of Sonic the Comic. This is the story that changes the landscape. There will be one more uh, tipping point in about 10, 11, 12 issues time that will crystallize this new setting into what Sonic the Comic will essentially be remembered for. The trick of it all, first of all, is that at the end of the previous issue, you know, we had Robotnik say that... uh, they were going to be lost somewhere in the future. And we learn here that the Omniviewer um, explicitly exploits the lack of specificity in Robotnik's yes. command. We re- he is Like a genie. He is not evil. He has merely been enslaved by Robotnik and didn't want to do this. He had to do this. So he exploited that lack of non-specificity to only send Sonic and Co. six months into the future, knowing that they could then fight back against Robotnik after he had conquered the planet. Now, this is an episode that I I kind of don't know how to feel about, because I love it. Oh, yeah. It goes against some of the principles that I uphold about when I'm talking about this comic, which is that here we have a, a, an issue that kind of decides we're going to have a new continuity now instead of being like the games. And yet, it never really felt to me as if we'd strayed far from the world of the games. I continued playing Sonic 3 and Knuckles and saw in it the world that I recognised from the comic. Yeah, yeah. And yet, here we have this new version of Mobius ruled by Robotnik with a new form of badniks in it. People are... The the characters like, you know, Porker Lewis and Johnny Lightfoot are still now in their, you know, small animal from inside the badniks form, but soon they'll change in appearance a bit well this is the advantage of an evolution of ideas rather than Mm -hmm. starting out with um with that but but you know even then like you say although it would change the the baseline which is simply it, it put robotnik in charge of the planet it didn't actually otherwise change the planet everything still looked like the games yes. and they were able to adapt the premises of the games pretty much directly mm-hmm. regardless of of the change in the in the base scenario in the comic you know we were still very much reading the comic of the games and playing games of the comic you know it's it's, it's a very clever conceit that allows them to come up with dramatic stories between games yeah without us essentially just treading water and waiting for the next game to tell us what actually happens next yeah because of course put yourself in uh, Nigel's shoes writing this he knows this isn't exactly how it works out but he knows that if necessary he can just have Robotnik not be in charge of Mobius again by the time they have to cover the next game that may happen to change the story dramatically for instance I mean I certainly for quite some time after this was very hung I remember this I was very hung up on the idea that they were technically in the future air quotes Ah. so I was like are they ever going to go back to the present? <laughs> you know, in, in yeah. part of my mind was always... And I remember, following this issue, it becomes quite common for the next dozen or so issues, maybe a little more, can't quite remember, for Sonic stories to start with a little tag that reminds you that Mobius is ruled, ruled by, by Robotnik. Robotnik. RBR. Yeah. Um, and then that went away after a while because it was the, the standard. But then some well down the line, 40 issues, maybe something like that, um, one issue just did it again. <laughs> and I remember my brother going, what? This whole time? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, they never went back to the present to fix things. <laughs> I was hung up on the idea that they had time traveled to make this happen. 
so the title of this one is Back to Reality, which is a name crib from Red Dwarf, which Nigel wrote the comic for. Yes. I wonder if you realised that or if it was just in his head. I, I don't know. Well, I, I did do a little look up of that and uh, he says it amused him to use a Red Dwarf title, so presumably it, it was intentional. <laughs> there's some tremendously fun stuff in this as well. There's some lines in here that are representative of the sense of humour, I think, Sonic and particularly Nigel's comics would, would develop as we went along. Like, you know, the Omniviewer pops off to go back to the special zone before Robotnik realises he's hoodwinked him or anything. And then these new badniks turn up, these green uh they don't they're, they're like tank badniks they have torsos with tank treads driving them around yeah. and it's like you know this area is off limits the penalty for transgression is death penalty for everything's death as a matter of fact <laughs> <laughs> yeah there's again so much character and life to nearly every line of dialogue in this like at the top of page two we have porker lewis almost looking out into the camera and saying uh, sonic i think there's something you ought to see and the reason that that one struck me is that this is kind of we're looking into the eyes of porker lewis in his last moment of innocence like jeez, <laughs> oh, that's a bit it ain't that deep Dave. like look <laughs> at his sweet little not yet a freedom fighter face that's a little oh, animal Parker. pig and, and he's gonna end up having to have this this awful Awful life of struggle he's gonna grow thumbs <laughs> yeah wait <laughs> i never really thought about that yeah does he end up with with opposable yeah thumbs? yeah huh? he gets hands oh, weird <laughs> but these badniks are pretty tough they can stand up to a spin attack so sonic has to uh trick them into shooting each other get between them and get them to shoot one another yeah the way nigel's written this and the way that richard shows it just there is no confusion as you're reading this comic which sometimes we felt in in, in previous issues with different strips you get to watch sonic zip up into the air curl over come down and land and you see that their lasers are following him and of course he lands between them so they end up shooting themselves it's not like we're watching a almost a two-dimensional storyboard diagram nothing of the sort oh. the camera's doing all no, sorts no. of interesting things but it's just yeah. so clearly put together that you know exactly what happened this this comic has gone up a step in quality now yeah and it's another great example as well of kitching using sonic speed as a weapon yes Yes. You know, it's not just a thing that he does. It's like Sonic fights by using his speed. Yeah. It's not just... He doesn't just be somebody that runs or whatever. And this is something we've seen in contrast with previous issues where other writers didn't really do that. This is, you know, Sonic uses speed as a tool. And then we've got page four, which is lovely to see because it is just a page of Sonic and the little animal friends talking to each other. We just get to spend some time with them, which, you know listeners if you aren't reading this let me remind you the sonic strip is seven pages long each episode and that's hardly anything but here is use of that space that's done so carefully that it allows us a a whole page to just spend time with these characters and of course they're talking about the immediate threat that surrounds them and what's happened while sonic was away but it's great to see yeah it's the kind of pacing that um would be indicative of just the, the different approach in writers but johnny lightfoot deduces that uh they have only been sent six months forward into the future, so they, they troop over to the Emerald Hill village and find that it has been uh, covered in banners and posters from Robotnik. I actually love this shot of the village because, again, um, we've talked before about how sometimes some artists have trouble translating the zone designs yeah. into three dimensions, but this, uh, it's full of all the, the strange, unusual shapes that you would see in the background of the video games, and the, the structures, and the towers, and the curves, and the spins, and the ramps, and the tubes, and it, it looks just so right, doesn't it? It's so great. So, it's a almost full-page picture. Along the top, mm. you've got a thin picture where 
everybody peeps their heads up over some kind of a ledge and and Richard's given us the checkerboard pattern on that ledge and then we see this Emerald Hill diorama as it were and yeah god you know you've got the sort of the um the hills in the background with the crater of sand lopped out of it you've got have you, I've never noticed before this big sweeping road at the front that goes up into a well it is a loop but it's got a big banner hung in front of it so you can't see that it's a loop a defaced banner you can see like two little rabbits seem to have painted Robotnik out over the top of it do you know what I don't think they painted it I think someone painted it because the rabbits appear to be involved oh yeah you know what I think you're right sorry I thought that was a rabbit with something in its hand but it's actually like a rabbit and a little baby rabbit and a little baby rabbit and if you look at it one of the rabbits is carrying a huge bundle of of sticks sticks, which makes me think that he's currently being made to do work for the robotic regime but then you've got the other rabbit who is maybe this is just me trying to find storytelling here but like maybe berating a younger rabbit who might be the one who painted it maybe i (laughs) there also possibility it might be like shielding its eyes oh gosh could be yeah these are the things we can pick apart basically there's this real sense of this being a regime now because there are these glowering robotic faces plastered all over over everything there are cameras there are eggs with cameras in them flying around everywhere i love the little cameras little flying eggs with lenses poking out in three directions and i've only just i I don't know that i ever truly noticed it before because it's covered by a, a a big speech bubble of sonic swearing i'll get you for this but there's an armed guard tower right there as well yeah with machine guns poking out of it in all directions, yes. Yeah, rough. This is also our introduction to these, well, we would know them later as the trooper badniks, but they're just called soldiers in uh, in this strip. And they look a little different here too. They're a little bit more cartoony, a little stumpier than the yes. form that they would eventually take. But these are uh, like, um, who knows if the similarity is intentional, but like the Arakbot from back in issue five, these are badniks without organic batteries, no nobody inside so sonic no little animal in there to rescue yeah yes he can't beat them with a spin attack but because there's nobody inside he can really welly into them without fear of hurting the uh, the mobian inside and, and here there's a repetition yeah. it's it's a repetition of the same joke again you know one of the troopers calls up a a mobian for not reporting to the chemical plant work detail because it turns out his wife is sick and it's like, the penalty for non-compliance with the work scheme is death penalty for doing anything around here is death unfortunately the punchline to that seems to have gone through some kind of misprint or some kind of rewrite because the the badnik replies dr robotnik is harsh but fair okay maybe they're not fair but we like them yeah it's like them being what the laws or the rules or the laws or something it was supposed to say the laws are harsh but fair or the rules are harsh but fair or dr robotnik's laws or it's i think that's been copy edited to make sure we know we're talking about robotnik and then the the syntax hasn't been changed and then uh yep our story concludes with sonic smashing up the badniks and swearing down one of the little egg camera lenses that robotnik will pay and this is such a great moment because you get this picture of sonic on the screen in Robotnik's office sort of yelling up at the camera and there's Robotnik in his reclining chair going hum with his hum face and uh, I always misinterpreted the the shadow of his finger as his mouth (laughs) it looks like he has this really horrible expression unless that is his mouth I don't think so I it's funny you mentioned Robotnik's mouth because I remember that the the next panel always stuck with me just at this early stage as Richard Elson's art was taking over my childhood I I really yes. zoomed <laughs> in on the way he drew all of like the the blood vessels and the and the yeah. capillaries in in Robotnik's distended lips <laughs> he really yeah we have the final picture is is Robotnik yelling into into Urgh. the panel as it were and 
And he's got, yeah, he really lavishly draws that bulging lip that Robotnik has. And it's yeah. just grotesque and it's absolutely brilliant. And we can also see in these two panels that Robotnik in the interim has been redesigned a little bit. He's wearing a sort of uh, composite costume that combines his, his game yes. look with elements of the adventures of Sonic the Hedgehog cartoon design. I mean, really, really, it's just that he's got the bullseye, yes. the belt buckle on his belly, and then, the, and then the crosshairs that stretch up to his neck and, and the belt around his waist. But then Richard's given him a small version of the triangles as well to kind of compensate yeah, between the two. Yeah, to merge the two designs. No, I did go back and take a look, actually, and in the final panel of the previous issue, he is also drawn with this design, but not coloured. Not coloured right. The central yellow strip is still yes. red and his cuffs are still red, so... Um, I want to know what that looks like. I'm going to just get that comic. Hang on. Go for it. I mean, he's in the Egomatic, so um, you can't see most of it, so you don't even see the central buckle. It's just that you, he's got a collar instead of the two triangles, basically. Yeah, wow. Oh, I see exactly what you mean. Yeah, so yeah. he's got the, the smaller version of the triangles, he's got the yellow collar, and he's got the, the stripe disappearing into the, where the Egomatic covers it up. And what it does mean is that they have access to materials we don't. They've yes. seen that this cartoon is coming, they've had a look at that design, and they've, they're they wondering about implementing little bits of it. Maybe this whole story is Nigel's tentative way of wondering about how to incorporate the Freedom Fighters idea. Maybe they even heard about that at this early well, stage. Well, it's only going to be a couple of issues before we, as a reading audience, learn a little about the Sonic cartoon, and um, it yes. won't be the last of its influence that we'll see. Not by a long shot. Both adventures of and what they call sat am they would have their own influence on sonic the comic but that's a little way yeah. away yet so we'll uh, we'll get to that when we get to it can sonic survive in a world ruled by robotnik find out next issue oh boy oh boy was i ready for the next issue back in the <laughs> yes. day let me tell you oh we are on a hook at this stage yeah. there is no way of turning back we've got to read every single issue of this thing yeah yeah we, we're now way past the point where there was any question of if this was going to be an ongoing series or a flash in the pan we were in. And we could have a few Duff Sonic strips. We could. And it wouldn't be enough to get did. you to dump the... And we did. And it wouldn't be enough <laughs> because the backup strips would be particularly strong during this weird transitional period. But we'll get to that after the... Refusal! Echo the Dolphin on Game Gear, Jurassic Park on Game Gear, Home Alone on the Master System, and Fantastic Dizzy on the Mega Drive. Never played a single one of these. There's very little I can come up with, though, that encapsulates the time this was published than this double-page spread, because those are... (laughs) Wow, I I never thought you're so right. One of the biggest Sega games of the era, two of the biggest movies of the early 90s, and a game nobody's heard about since 1993. Well, I'm just going to have to push you right in the bin uh, as a dyed-in-the-wool Dizzy fanboy. (laughs) Um, But yeah, not only is Echo the Dolphin one of Sega's biggest uh, properties of the time, it's also a slightly unlikely one, because it's so... It comes across as so highbrow and eco-friendly and Captain Planet that you'd think it was an educational thing if you didn't know. I mean, which is also very certainly representative of the general era of kids' pop culture. And then Jurassic Park comes in with its... It's tempting for me to say that it redefined what we thought of as, like, blockbuster movie stuff. Oh, I think that's wholly fair. Yeah, because it, it, it fits in with the... And because it came from Steven Spielberg, who did Jaws and stuff, so it's not as if it was a yeah. totally new thing, but it kind of felt like somehow a new, a new approach to that sort of thing. And then Home Alone, which... The big, biggest film of, I think it was like 1990, which is 
just when the Mega Drive was coming out. Odd that that's still getting a look in, but things just lasted long in those days. And then the reason Fantastic Dizzy sits on the page with all of these is is because it's like basically the last gasp of the 1980s British gaming era in mm. which the, the makers of Dizzy, which, listeners, was back when Britain's gaming industry was big enough here and when Britain's own culture was closed enough here that you could conceivably have a British games mascot and he could feel about on par with Mario. <laughs> that could yeah, not have I happened. Go that far, but but I, I know would. what you mean. I would. Well, I, think I, if you I pick guess up... I came. To, I you you had an Amiga. I came to games a bit later. Well, an Amiga and a Spectrum. But so I would... Dizzy was always a very distant second, also around to me. But I was aware of him, and that's because 1993 is the very last time when he could be considered to be on the scene at all. His day was sort of mid to late 80s. And it was at that time that, yeah, uh, America and Japan were basically just going, no, gaming is ours. You can't do it anymore. If you do it, you work for us. And as we saw last issue, you had um, a British-made Mega Drive game, and that was starting to happen. And Codemasters was writing high at the time. Sure, they did. um, Micro Machines, didn't they? Micro Machines, exactly. And that's regarded as one of the all-time Mega Drive greats. Yeah, and you could say that that changed their whole company's direction, because before about now they were a company that had like a hodgepodge of different games under their belt but they were famous for dizzy yeah but now they're a, a racing car game company and micro machines may well have been the start of that popularity mm-hmm. as that so there's a couple of things to say you want to say anything about echo um no i do there's one thing i want to say about the game and there's one thing i want to say about the uh the review itself the thing about the review itself is i quite enjoyed this part where it says uh the lands and seas you visit are all different and there's plenty of arcade action as well as puzzles it is all done in a non-threatening way well it's true isn't it i mean that was kind of the thing about echo was it was it not just that it was kind of environmental but it was quite sedate and zen i see you never quite made it past the uh tutorial screen correct <laughs> Correct, yes. But no, I mean, even the first couple of levels, it's just, yeah. you know, that, that, that gentle mu- I know it gets bonkers later on, but it, it was quite zen and sedate yeah. in its way. Or, you know, perhaps part of my perception of Echo is colored by the approach that uh, Sonic the Comic would take ah. to it, which had that, that kind of otherworldly attitude to the telling of its story, which was quite contrary to Sega's harsh-edged cool of the 90s, you know? It's funny that he emerged as such a figure, but... <laughs> yeah. Well, I never had it, so I mainly have to defer to what Abby tells me about this, because she was massively into it. She was a bit of a an animal fan as a kid. And um, the way that the game goes is that, essentially, yeah, you have this serene opening scene in which you're just a dolphin with no goals and you're just swimming around. And then suddenly the whole sky flashes with lightning and everyone gets abducted by aliens? Yep, that's it. And then, yeah, then it's back to being quite serene again. But as the game goes on, yeah. it gets actively quite frightening. And I never got mm. that far. But um, No, I, I was just borrowed and rented for yeah. me. So, yeah. I mean, I had trouble getting past that first screen because yeah. it doesn't actually tell you what it is you're supposed to do. And you're no. supposed to try and... Uh, you have to jump up to a certain height. Yes. It's, it's basically the, the area where you sort of familiarize yourself with the controls and everything. But it doesn't tell you, hey, jump here now to start plotting. No. And I was like, what do I? I can imagine if you were renting the game then that was really annoying but I can also imagine that if you owned the game that was great because Echo it is for kids who watch the really wild show and you know care about the World Wildlife Fund and to them 
they will have bought this game to splash around as a dolphin. And then for something to suddenly and surprisingly actually start to happen must have been quite a, a moment when what it felt like you were playing up till then, if you didn't know, it was something of a dolphin sim game. Simulator. But we shouldn't give out all our Echo opinions now whenever he's going to be a fixture of the, the comic for a Good while. Good point. Well, then, I will then uh, swerve to giving out my opinion of the Game Gear game, which I looked up, and it's such a good conversion to the game yeah? game that I would almost say I think it looks better than the Mega Drive version. Really? Like, yeah. Like on a ratio or? The Mega Drive version is so concerned with looking good that the sprite mm. is really quite large on the screen. Yeah. And that feels comfortable and ordinary on a Game Gear screen where all the games were zoomed in a bit because they were all Master System conversions anyway. But um, it just has this real clarity to it and I can well imagine how nice it must have been to have a handheld version of Echo the Dolphin, you know, where you're yeah. being this little dolphin on your little machine. But then, uh, wondering whether this was a conversion of a Master System game, and it is, I went and looked at the Master System version, and again, the sprite is tiny on screen compared to the Mega Drive 1, which gives you this great wide view of the ocean around you, which I think is better. So yeah, I think I actually prefer the 8-bit version of Echo the Dolphin to the 16-bit. Uh, maybe I should play them and find out. Tony Takushi's definitely at it again with his reviews, though. <laughs> this uh, home, the, the Home Alone one jumped out at me, where uh, he makes a point of stressing, there are plenty of options. You can check out the sound effects, tunes, and difficulty levels. <laughs> Okay, Tony, thanks. Back in your box till next week. Like, <laughs> Home Alone is famously bad, even though it has a 75% review score here, but I do gather that the Master System version of the game is uh, considered the best one that they did of the of Really? The various, uh, yeah. That, honestly, so, that shocks me, because I looked them up, and the, and, and I'd never, I don't know anything about this. I've not heard anyone's opinions about these games at all. The Mega Drive version hmm. seems to me to be fairly close to what I would come up with if I was asked to conceive of, like, the perfect Home Alone game that could come out on the Mega Drive. Oh, sure. There's, like, what you would conceive as a good idea for a Home Alone game, yeah. and then there's, like, whether or not they made a good game. Well, it? because you've got a great big house, that you're exploring as you go around this great big house you're picking up materials that you can then stick together into makeshift traps and weapons yeah. to use against the burglars who are randomly roaming about the place so you can choose to avoid them or confront them once you've got yourself a good weapon from a crafting system and you go into the menu and you can like stick together materials you've picked up in the house I saw um, the player I was watching got like a CD player and some something else to make it into a gun and something else and that made this um, sound projectile which made the burglars like clap their hands to their ears. I saw another thing that made them turn all all grey and confused. So you're crafting weaponry that actually like triggers unique animations all the way through this. All the time there's a... And it's, it's open world. You can go to all of the houses in the neighbourhood and sort of protect them from these burglars. It sounds fantastic and it looks like a certain amount of fun. So I'm not sure. It must just be really boring to actually play. Whereas perhaps the 8-bit version, you're more just looking at like a single screen a bit like a flicky or a school days or something you're looking at the multiple stories of the house all at once and you just jump around the level pick up rings and vases and sort of you know think like, there's about four or five to each screen valuables in each house avoiding the burglars and then you put them in the safe and the level ends maybe it was just the the playthrough i was looking at but like each level seemed to last about 20 seconds and it just looked crap to me but if this is the better game, then it must be one of those where you have to play it to get it. Amanda Dyson of Mega said the game was a wasted film license and a grotesquely overpriced, pathetically underdeveloped mockery of a game. 
<laughs> so I don't know what that says about wow. you, Dave. But not uh... impressed by the innovative, forward-looking <laughs> crafting system. Evidently, um, I do want to mention Dizzy here because fa- Dizzy was my first love. Before mm. I cared about Sonic, I was all about Dizzy. And, and it... what cruel irony that the Hedgehog would come along and take you away from the Eggman! It, it, yeah, right, exactly. Dizzy was a fascinating thing. It was one of the earliest attempts that I was aware of in like true like nitty-gritty bedroom coding old british gaming yeah. back when things were 8-bit and rubbish to make try and make something that felt like and resembled a cartoon come to life on your on your screen and of course to look at now it you know isn't that but at the time it really felt like a step forward it felt like opening up the the zx spectrum and just putting something new on it which you know to me it was the first time i'd ever seen it in games elsewhere i'm sure in the arcades and so on all sorts of interesting things were going on but dizzy was very exciting to me and he went in all these fantasy world magic land you had these big fantasy kingdoms to explore they were just expansive and excite i can't there's no way i can stress how exciting i found these games and this one fantastic dizzy was codemasters going okay it's clear that the spectrum and the amiga and all this are not the way of the future consoles are the thing we want to be in we can make way more money there we can charge way more i mean look this is out this is 39.99 fantastic dizzy on the mega drive their previous dizzy games the most expensive ones had been 4.99 well uh, you see what the grave section says as dave yeah. gibbon takes issue five pound more than codemaster's first release ah and that's presumably micro machines well there actually there was a more expensive uh, dizzy game on the spectrum which came out around now but it was 10 pounds <gasps> so <laughs> and that felt like a slap in the face yeah back then that felt like oh the, the oliver twins have gone to the bad um <laughs> and here they are what they're doing here and this is what Fantastic Dizzy is, is they've basically taken all of the ideas that they had in all the previous Dizzy games and they're doing a big mashup. And they'd previously done it on the on the NES, uh, a version of this same game. And in fact, ideas that were in that ended up being released as separate Spectrum games. And here they are, all mashed up together in one big game. And the result is frankly overwhelming. It was too big. I've still never finished it. It was too hard. I feel like I maybe played a little bit of it. Maybe just from a rental again. uh, Yeah, my cartridge came with... It was a a twofer, and it also had uh, Cosmic Spacehead on it, which we mentioned last issue. And so that, as far as I'm concerned, made it worth it. But uh, yeah, love love that game. What, like one cartridge with two games on? Yeah, yeah, and and the way you switch between them, there wasn't a menu, you just hit reset, and it toggled. (laughs) Oh, so you double-tapped the... Codemasters were not particularly concerned with releasing things in an official way. Like, they they made their own cartridges bespoke. They didn't really go through Sega. Codemasters releases almost felt bootleg in the yeah. sense that they came on cartridges that were non-standard. My Dizzy Cosmic Spacehead one was like, it curved up towards the top, so it was like tall kind of a shape. I can't really describe it. Egg-shaped? <laughs> sort of! <laughs> um, yeah. Very weird. And of course, they made the game Genie, which oh, bypasses right, all this right. stuff. I didn't realise they did. Yeah, and they got in trouble for uh, that. Did they get in trouble for the game Genie? I think in the end, they. The, I don't know if it ever went to court, and if it did, they won, I think. But yeah. like, yeah, there was. There was. There was. Eyebrows were raised, to put it that way. Hello, Editor Dave here. I looked it up. Um, apparently, eyebrows were only raised at Nintendo. Sega gave them the official seal of approval, presumably to prove they were down with the kids, uh, although they stipulated that it mustn't alter saves. The next page is the winning post. It's a full page 
dedicated to that big competition, the grand opening compo from the first few issues where you had to cut out the the little oh, the three tokens. tokens I've forgotten yeah. what the prizes were in that. What were the prizes in that contest? Well, the if? grand prize a was mega a, CD. A complete mega CD system including mega, mega drive. Hot diggity damn. And games and yeah, so the winner of that was Matthew Baradell of Silaby Loughborough. Loughborough, that's right down the road from me. Matthew, if you're right there. Where I grew up. Anyway, yeah, many congrats, Matthew. Remember, uh, the, the comic says, to take breaks for eating and sleeping every so often when playing with your pies. <laughs> and then I won't read out all of the rest of the winners, but there was a few of them, uh, several Master Systems, five of those. Three Game Gears were given out. And then 50 other boomers won Sega T-shirts and baseball caps. Wear them with pride, dudes. I love those. No, I remember that line now that you've said you? it. Wear them with pride, dudes. I can remember that as <laughs> being in the magazine now. And yeah. then it says, uh, Panini Superplay Cards Freebie. Also in STC3 was a fabulous chance. Not, not hashtag three, not number three, just three. Mm. Like it was the third movie. Also in STC3, was a fabulous chance to win one of ten complete sets of Panini's Sega Superplay cards plus a special binder to put them in so step up and take a bow the following boomers and then there's a list of names and I I confess I, I've scanned down them just to make sure I don't know any of them <laughs> could happen, could happen yeah. if you didn't win anything don't worry, there are lots more awesome STC compos to come with some stunning prizes, so keep those pencils sharpened. I wonder if kids even sharpen pencils anymore. Jesus, I never eat... Wow, that, oh my god, I feel so old suddenly. Kid Chameleon. Kid Chameleon, part three. It's written by Michael Cook, the art's by Brian Williamson, colours by Steve White and letters by Ellie DeVille. As Red Stealth, Casey rescues Susie from the sewer monster and gives her his sword so that she can defend herself while he fights the monster hand to hand. The fight doesn't go well, but Susie slays the beast with the samurai's blade. Casey tries to tell her who he really is, but when he says the magic word chameleon again, he transforms into the super-sighted superhero Eyclops, and the pair are then set upon by invisible sewer folk who abduct Susie. I forgot how long Casey actually spent as Red Stealth. I know! Yeah, it's he's, so weird! It's the, the thing's half over now, and he's only just turned into his second uh, hero. Yeah, a new reader would assume that this is the character you play in Wildside, and wouldn't realise hmm. that the premise here is that he even turns into multiple heroes. I remember that the premise was that he turned into multiple heroes, yeah. and I think I always knew that. But, like, if you just read this comic, you'd think, oh yeah, you go into the game, you turn into this samurai, and that's what you do. And it almost comes as a surprise when he turns into Iclops halfway through the comic. Yeah. Well, my memory is that every remaining chapter of this has a different hero in it now. But that's the solid pacing of Kid Chameleon on show again, like getting yeah. things all set up so that you understand the premise and letting it unfold at a decent pace without having to hurdle through it. That's right. Because, again, there's a lot of, you know, although a lot of this uh, chapter is just him hand-to-hand fighting with the monster, there's still a a lot going on that requires inclusion in the summary as it were you know that's right i loved just turning the page from page one to the double spread of two and three was like a real feast for the eyes mm. there's i don't know what exactly it is about it but just all these pictures of combat with this monster are just something wonderful to look at at the first glance karate chopping off its tentacles and being caught in its claws and 
Uh, although he didn't breathe fire last time, he jumped ahead to the conclusion that it was a fire breath monster and it's breathing yep. fire in this one. And he was right. And it looks so much like the sort of random monster you would see as an end boss in a Japanese shooter or something. This monster is huge and enormous, but Susie needs something to defend herself. So he gives her the sword and then he's like, look, I can beat it up. I'm a master of martial arts. And so far, so modern. At the time, I'm going like, yeah, this same story can be written now. And then suddenly we we jump straight into a, a real like 90sism which is that when i imagine martial arts now i'm imagining like densely choreographed fights with all sorts of arms and legs going everywhere but here yeah. we have a karate chop <laughs> which chops some sort of tentacle in half yeah Hi-ya. the karate chop was just the hold defini- your hand flat and that's yeah exactly it. yeah flat hand just do that with it, chop with it, and that is martial arts in the 90s. And then we've got on the next page, I was talking about the art before with this fight and the monster. It all suddenly changes on the next page because first you've got, like, the first few panels are uh, almost a slow zoom in on Susie who's drawn in a, in a like, deliberately incongruous style with the madcap mm. stuff that's going on around them. And then Iclops. Is Iclops in the game? Uh, presumably. I don't think they would have made anything up. Neither do I, but it looks so much like a, a sort of... Like a- Cyclops, right? I know. <laughs> Certainly, um, some of the later ones, there's a very Hulk-like figure that they do just basically play as Hulk in a hat. You know, <laughs> so I think that they knew what they were up to with this. You know, you know what I noticed here actually is we we called uh, to attention last issue how he said chameleon as he stabbed the sword into the combine harvester, yes. and we were like, oh, that's odd. And I and I still don't think he would ever do it again. But what I had forgotten is he starts to tell Susie who he is. Mm. And he goes to remove his helmet. Yes, to reveal as himself. he's removing his helmet, and he says the word chameleon, and that's the trick. It's that's how he. Yeah, I remember that, and I'm pretty sure as we go forward, we'll see. But it's when he says chameleon as he removes his helmet or his oh. visor or whatever. That's when the transformation. Oh, really? When he touches his head gear. Oh, well, I'm yeah. glad you were here to tell me that because if you hadn't been here to tell me that, I would have thought that was an inconsistency and it was one of the... Yeah. I did have that as a criticism. It's not a Captain Marvel Shazam situation mm. where anytime he says the word, he automatically transforms. Mm. Uh, he, he does have to be, yeah, taking the helmet off. Because in the game, the idea was that you collected the masks yes. and the masks transformed you. So I guess that's what they're leaning into with this uh, in that, you know, he, he takes the mask off. As we've been talking, I've, I've looked up Iclops from the game. He is in the game mm-hmm. he looks yeah. nothing like this well when you say nothing he's a imagine just a, a man in a simple green spacesuit green with a robocop visor and a long torch not it doesn't even look like a gun he's just holding a torch you have to assume that they were doing a cyclops riff yeah like they take the basic design and they've definitely jim lee x because of course this is 1993 jim lee's x-men biggest thing in the comics world right yes now. and this is clearly supposed to be a riff on that yeah he's green in the games green and white but here he is wearing the full-on blue and yellow x-men color style uniform with a red visor as well and it's covered in shoulder pads and ribs and ridges and, and bandoliers yeah. and there's little straps around his thighs and everything yeah whereas the one in the game just looks like he's got a sort of a you know just a top and trousers on yeah. and silver boots like he, a little it's hazmat a, suit yeah it, very very simple design so yes it technically is from the game but they've gone screw it we're doing Cyclops. Oh, it, it looks like perhaps we might not be giving them enough credit because I've actually just pulled up the cover art for Kid Chameleon. Oh. And he is blue and yellow on the cover of the game. Still really feels like a Jim Lee X-Men. Oh, wow. The cover of the game. 
This whole comic is explained by the cover of the game. Uh, yes. <laughs> uh, yes, looking at the version of, of Iclops that's on the front of the game. I don't know, it's kind of like a so- totally separate thing again. It's almost like a sort of... It's got the helmet design of the game. Yeah. It's just a big round helmet and a simple visor on the front, whereas the comic character definitely has a big fat wrap-around yellow Cyclops X-Men visor. He kind of looks like a more of a sort of 1950s spaceman type. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Type Definitely. Front and you, I mean, if you look up at Red Stealth there, you yeah. can see it's just a helmet on a vest and shoulder pads. He's not... It's still a child's body. Yeah. But they're definitely pulling more from the cover art. And yet, I mean, would you be surprised to learn that the cover art was the only piece of reference they had? Well, not at all, no. <laughs> we find out that uh, the bully guy, whatever his name was brad or whatever brad he's uh missing she doesn't know where he is yeah he ran off and left her yeah which is nice to know and then he transforms into iclops as we say and his transformation is very well timed because these sewer men turn up and they're invisible but iclops can see them for he has super sight i wonder if that's from the game if there are characters you can only see when you've got the helmet on that seems unfair when i played it the amount of times that you lose your power up to me, that would be unplayable if certain mm. certain enemies were only visible with that power-up activated. Got the wiki link right here, it'll tell me. He has the unique ability to reveal hidden blocks with his oh, ray gun. That makes sense. It's interesting that the that Casey basically, um, he doesn't just get the power and the costume and the voice. He gets, like, the knowledge of each hero that he turns into. Yeah, yeah. And it's an interesting touch. I think we talked about this last episode. We so did, but what interests me about it this time that I, haven't, that I didn't notice then is that who's writing the script for this one again? This is Michael Cook. Right, well, he's, he's using this to basically be able to skip over a lot of establishing stuff by having him already know it yeah well this is pretty standard stuff that you find in these transformation stories you say you know oh. to, to give a modern example you know you're ben tens or or uh even you know to compare it to anime or something you know when yeah. a, a digimon digivolves right. or the the comparable thing that you'd see in a kid's cartoon where they they evolve with full knowledge of what it is they are and have become and uh, there may be a little stumbling around in something like a ben 10 to master a new power but generally speaking it's not they don't spend an episode or a story getting to grips with their new form it's yeah. just uh it is it's their new power um dial h you know to put the, the classic example dc's dial h for hero yes now i wonder how much of this comes from that because i've never read that i don't know how the the setup is handled but what i was interested in here is um this panel right in the middle here where it's like these are creatures with bodies that reflect light at the wavelength the human eye cannot see Iclops vision gives me night sight and slow-mo infrared and ultraviolet. He just knows all this stuff. And yeah, yeah. that means that the writer can just tell us it and then move on. I, I bit at the time I was a bit confused by it. I think if I'd known the game as well, this sort of reference might be easier for me to swallow as like, well, it's sort of filling us in on what powers that character has so we can move on. I had trouble reading this back in the day because it felt like I was being info dumped on and um, it was a bit too much for me. But you you didn't know the game and it was fine for you. No, I loved it, honestly. It's it's very super heroic, you know. I mean, it's uh, part of it, I guess, that, that lends to the super heroic is the first person narration which we haven't had um, yeah. in an STC strip up till now. You know, like Shinobi was a third-person narration. Golden Axe was that very dry, uh, British, totally removed 
narration that just described the contents of the panels, you know. Yeah. Whereas this uh, Casey actually serves as the narrator of the story, you know, um, which is basically how all superhero comics are written today. But, you know, back in the early 90s, wasn't so universal. Maybe it just simply spoke to me because it was very superheroic. Because I was only just starting to get into comic book superheroes at the time. So I don't know if I immediately made the, the Cyclops connection when I saw Iclops or not. Impossible to ignore now, looking back. Can't remember if I made the connection back in the day or not. Well, now now that you've brought that up, you've you've made me realize that actually yeah, this this explains why you were into this comic and I wasn't because I've always you're not a big superhero fan. I've always rejected them. I've always found them just like, I don't know, the same thing as a soap opera. And so I've never quite got it. I mean, except except when they were removed from comic, you know, of course I used to watch the Adam West Batman. I used to be perfectly happy watching, you know, New Adventures of Superman and stuff when it was repackaged in a way that didn't feel continuity. I loved it as a concept, but um no, the comics I've never really been able to get along with. But you did, so this here it was, in Sonic the Comic, like a little digest version of that. Could be the reason. Yeah, so then our adventure ends. Casey, as Iclops, fights off these invisible monsters, but by the time he's done, he turns around and finds that Susie has disappeared. And, you know, it's not immediately obvious from the story itself, but the next issue tag, stolen by the <laughs> sewer man. <laughs> we know that uh, she has been grabbed by them, obviously. Whereas, you know, could have been anything else while he was distracted, but... She could have just sunk down under the, the sewage. I love this noise to describe their son's chicker. Ooh, yeah, they're chickering off into the distance. <laughs> Predatory, sort of. News zone. News zone. News zone. Oh, it's a big one this time. Chris, it's a big one. This double page spread of Sonic CD. Sonic CD. Reconciling all the little erroneous factoids we've been given about it in previous issues, calling back to the announcements of Amy Rose and Metal Sonic. Yeah. I mean, not much we need to tell our listeners about Sonic CD, because it is just uh, describing Sonic CD, makes a point of talking about the animated opening sequence. And... Yes, although, I mean, at the time, we were so desperate for information about this, and I am interested in the ways in which, I guess, you know, it's being written about from the perspective of someone who has seen it to someone who hasn't. Mm. It's odd, actually. Tony kind of, he makes it, this is a Tony Takushi, I assume. Of course it is. Yeah. Oh, it is, it says here, yeah, Tony Takushi, author of The Complete Guide to Sonic 2, but we mentioned that before. <laughs> yeah. He makes it sound like Sonic CD has this incredibly dense storyline. He does, doesn't it? And I suppose by the standards of the time it did. Yeah, I suppose so. Because the, the storytelling mechanic was built into the actual gameplay. Yeah, I guess, yeah. With the time travel. It says, Sonic CD has an amazing storyline. Rather than spoil all the surprises for you, I'll just give you a taste of what to expect. Hmm. I'm struggling now to think what any of those surprises might have been. And I don't know. Well, later in this, you know, when he's describing some of the bonus rounds and yeah. features and things, he talks about the 3D special zone and everything. But he says, and you also have to try and find a... Oh, but that would be telling. <laughs> yes. And I'm like, so... What's he talking about there? I assume he means the time stones. Uh, I, I guess so. You know what? I, looking back at it in context, I realize he is solely talking about the special stage, so I guess he must be. But I thought he was talking about finding the um, the robot making machines or the Metal Sonic holograms yes. in the main game as, you know, other hidden things to find, yeah. which aren't mentioned here anyway. Well, this was all stuff we had to speculate because, I mean, yeah. very few of us could afford Mega CDs. Sure. I, did you ever have one? No. And so I don't know about you, but I found it very easy to believe that, like, when he said that there's uh, so i'm imagining now as i've read this i've in my head 
I've got Sonic CD down as something that has a big epic storyline to it. And so, I mean, whenever you can dishonestly describe it as, as he does in the (laughs) sidebar here, having over 70 levels. (laughs) I mean, no, there are seven levels with three bits in them, Tony. Yeah. Which is still isn't 70. I don't know where he got 70. Oh, 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 no, I know where he got 70 from. It's because he's counting each time period as a different thing. Yeah, but so every, still, every, it's well, still not quite enough, four, is it? Well, well hang on. So there's, there's four to there each. Are seven, there are seven zones yeah. with three acts each. Yeah, and it would have to be the third ten. act. Oh, each of the third, each yes. of the third acts is always in the future. I'm forgetting so that the means acts. There's bad present. There's there's past, present, good future, and bad future. Yes. So that's four. Yeah. So that that's eight. So that's nine in every zone. Yeah. Then uh, times seven is sixty three plus seven bonus levels. Yeah. So that's seventy. And I guess then what was there like a final boss? Um. I can't remember I can't if remember. that had its own level. Yeah. So anyway. 71. <laughs> anyway, um, so there it's I am. It's a dishonest description of the game one way or the <laughs> it other. It certainly right? is. So I, so I had it in my head that this was a game with a complicated storyline. And so I found it very easy to believe that the story that will be presented by STC soon as an adaptation of the game was like that dense storyline being given to us. And I was, I, guess, I was actually surprised when I did play the game a couple of years later to find out how much stuff from that comic actually did come from the game after all. Yeah, yeah, it did. But that's for later. <laughs> Interesting review. It introduces Tony as a Sonic mega expert, as you said. He did write that guide that I had and presumably drew it since most of it was maps. Mm. But sometimes I felt like the review kind of sounded like it was written by someone who's seeing a Sonic game for the first time. Yeah, it's like, uh, and he's blue and there are loops. <laughs> You have to help Sonic complete each zone in 10 minutes or less, or you lose a life. It's like, yeah, we know. Yeah, and water's wet, Tony. <laughs> Come on. The overall aim is to beat that rotten egg Robotnik. You have to travel through zones, taking out the baddies and collecting rings and, and other power-ups hidden away in TVs. Yeah, Tony. We- Come on, Tony. <laughs> Jesus. We have played a Sonic game. But I'm not suggesting he... Is, is no, no, not at all. He but knows all just, about Sonic. I've got. I knew his just, credentials firsthand. So, like, but it's in Sonic the comic, man. It's like give your audience, like, you don't, <laughs> yeah. Does it have an option screen as well? <laughs> so maybe they got wind of the fact that there are kids reading this who just literally don't have video games, and this is what they I get guess, instead. Because there were, to be fair, uh, yeah. For instance, there's uh, actually, he finally says something as well that STC has been getting wrong this whole time, which is that Sonic is not interested in Amy's advances. It's finally said here on this double-page spread. Up till now, they've been going on about how she's his girlfriend. His girlfriend, yeah. I mean, I wonder if if the direction Sonic the Comic would eventually take with Amy would be born of that. Mm. That sort of press release misconception. Yeah, possibly, yeah. Although, I think it was always the case in the Japanese one that she was sort of infatuated with him... and he was uninterested in that whole concept. Certainly the early promotion definitely fed into the meta idea of Amy as infatuated with Sonic and Sonic being all about that bachelor lifestyle. <laughs> they also correct that chatter we saw in some of the earlier issues where they were talking about how it was a rehashed or an updated or an expanded version of Sonic 2. Yes. Remember we expressed some confusion reading about that, but they clarify here they are completely different games and that that was as we speculated based on early incomplete versions of the game yeah yeah 
Did you ever, in on the playground, have that chatter among people about how Sonic CD came between Sonic 1 and 2, and that was the reason Tails wasn't in it? Not on the playground. Only on the internet playground a few years later. Um, mm. As I understand it, the real reason for that is not just his Tails missing, like, it kind of has the air of a Sonic 1 sequel rather than a Sonic 2 sequel, I think. Mm. And it also has what is clearly a prototype underdeveloped spin dash. Yeah, the Infinity Payload. No, no. That's if you hold up. If you hold down oh, and yeah. press a button, you still spin, but it's just like a spin attack animation on the floor. It's just it doesn't it doesn't rev up. And so yeah, yeah. it felt like a kind of it did did feel like it came out between the two games, even though it didn't. Yeah. My understanding is that it's because they actually were made by two separate teams who split off after Sonic One. Oh, okay. I think one was Yuji Naka and the other was Naoto Oshima, and they each made a game separately, uh, one in Japan and one in America. So these were made at the same time and it just took longer to make sonic cd and yeah sonic cd was going to be a an expanded sonic 2 at some point because sonic 2 originally was going to be a time travel game was it? i didn't know that yeah there's a wonderful map uh, that they came out with a, a year or two back which is like an illustration from the development phase of sonic 2 where it's like here's the island that it's set on in the present and here's the island it's set on in the past and in the future and you get to compare them so like you get to see that originally is it the hilltop zone the one with those brachiosaur badniks yeah the hilltop zone is supposed to be the emerald hill zone in the past stuff like that i never knew any of that that is uh learning things all up on this show eh, sonic is sonic the comic i don't care about no games Get video games video <laughs> games rot your brain and turn your eyes square comics is where i was at and there's only one last thing I want to mention, which is that you are the one who made me notice for the first time that oh they've been just taking some screenshots by aiming a camera at the screen. <laughs> I know, the scan lines on that. Uh... And here we've got a mixture of the two. We've got, like, almost all of them seem to be actual, like, official released screenshots for them to use, except the title screen and the shots of the intro, which are taken off the screen. Oh, the scan lines are off the chain on that one. Yeah, even if the planet isn't. Womp womp! <laughs> Just a madbird! Just a It's quite nice, look at this. It's a show, show, show me. Double page spread for Sparkster. Whoa, Rocket Knight Adventures! Yeah. I must have had Rocket Knight Adventures that Christmas. Oh! I've never played it, you know. <gasps> it's great. I intend to play it. Played it, beat it. But just looking at this advert, it makes it look so cool. All the characters look really snazzy, and they're all yeah. dotted around the place. It looks real cool. Oh, it was a great one. Really playable, really colourful, cartoony graphics. But another one from that family of weird games we were talking about back last mm. issue that... Uh, taking unconventional animals and turning them into mascots. <laughs> what was Sparkster? What was he? A... He's an opossum. Oh, is he? Yes. Yeah. And was uh, he in Japan? Or is, have we come Yeah, no, that? no, he was because you could hang off by your tail. Oh, <laughs> Oh, well, there we go. Well, I look forward to... It's honestly... I'm becoming increasingly aware as we do STCTP that there are loads of Mega Drive games I always was interested in playing and never did. And I can just play them now really easily. I'm, I'm discovering games I never played before. Trip back in time. Relive your childhood. Yeah. Streets of Rage. Streets of Rage Part 3 by the usual creative team written by Mark Miller, art by Peter Richardson, letters by Tom Frame. 
Blaze visits Axel in hospital where she receives an offer of help from one of the last good cops left, Murphy, who gives her a distress beacon to call for aid when needed. Meanwhile, Max is ambushed and taken captive by ninjas in the employ of Hawk, who's revealed to be an ex-cop himself and Max's former partner, who he had drummed out of the force. Hawk then sends his ninjas to take out their next target, Axel. Yeah. This is really cool. I know, right? I'm past any pretense of this one, of trying <laughs> to judge this for being faux edgy cool for 13-year-old boys. I'm just right back in right back in 1993 with this one. It's doing yeah. exactly what it sets out to do, and it's doing it very well. Absolutely. I mean, so, like, the very first picture is, like, quintessentially 1993. It's an, an angled look down from the corner of a skyscraper. There's other skyscrapers in the background and a ninja is yeah. climbing up the up the thing. You can see the traffic whizzing by and then inset in that is a picture of a big strong man punching a punching bag. Yeah. It's like yeah, cool! Meet Max Hatchet, an ex-cop with a prize in his head. Yeah, I will! Cool, thanks! I will, he's cool! I like it. I, I love the, um, <laughs> the... We talked about it before, but the, the art style is in really in full display on this first panel with the uh, the very heavy, uh, charcoal-y, sketchy, pencil scribbly blacks. Yes. And the uh, the unnatural reds and yellows yeah. to colour the buildings. You know, it's uh, proper um, underground comic stuff. <laughs> yes, the, the buildings start in a... a, a like a bright pink yeah. very abstract colored shoes then they go to they sort of dissolve to black about halfway up yes as they rise above the city lights they they fade out to black and then oh, they're just of course that's what it is yes pinpricked by their own yellow window lights and then right at the top you have these purpley highlights and it kind of looks um batman the cold, the animated series yeah, it, it, there, very it? batman the animated yes. series i mean i think i said back at part one how it made me think of like the art style of batman the animated series was done where the backgrounds were um drawn on black paper instead of white that's right um and this isn't but boy oh boy if it's not channeling that energy yeah oh it's so cool so these ninjas and they're ninjas yeah there's ninjas clambering about with you know sort of thundercats logos on them Bit thundercats, they, right? i mean it's hawks hawk but and they creep in and we have this page fight between oh i never noticed this before wow oh cool max hatchet lamps one of them in the chin with a with a barbell yeah oh yeah that'll hurt you it's the sort of big bold super violent move that you could only get from an i mean this is 93 but this is very 80s action movie very the grit and sweat of the city you know yeah where you could hurl huge objects and the ninjas were probably fine anyway (laughs) or they might have been dead it didn't matter We were okay with yeah. our cold-blooded, gritty heroes of the streets who were cleaning up the dirty city because nobody else could, <laughs> often the occasional baddie, because that's how it was back then. And then, you know what I love so much, is that it, it suddenly cuts from that to this moody, purple-shadowed page mm. of, on page four, grown-up, dramatic dialogue yeah. between the woman one, what's her name? Blaze. The Blaze. woman one, Dave. Really? <laughs> <laughs> Look... There was three, four characters to pick in the game. One of them was a woman one. But <laughs> even though, okay, she is walking around in a bra in this, yeah. it's it's in no other way a sort of an exploitative look at the woman one. No. This is a proper dramatic scene. Yeah, there's no attempt at full edge here. This is genuinely, no. Blaze has gone to visit Axel in the hospital just because they've quit the force and gone outside the law. Nobody knows it. So they're not like, on, they're not on the lamb or on the run themselves yet. They're not vigilantes yet. It's kind of where their situation would evolve to as the Streets of Rage strips went on. Um, but Axel's room is being guarded and everything, but she just goes to visit Axel in the hospital 
hospital and there is one the one good cop left you know murphy tries yeah. to say it's not all bad you know there are some good cops left you know and she's like don't give me that crud murphy you know this whole <laughs> thing stinks and he's like well i can't quit the force i got a wife and child and it's like it yeah it's good it's all good it's only just actually occurring to me that it's this i'm, I'm not saying is this but is this Murphy from RoboCop? I feel like maybe the name yeah. Murphy is is possibly an allusion to that, yeah. And like you say, I, I love the the palette of this. It's uh, yeah. the whole. It's like there's no lights on in the room, so the figures are all in various shades of purple, and then um, they're like the light creeping in from outside highlights them in yellow in streaks because it's coming through yeah. um, blinds. And then there's bolts again of the red lights of the city. Uh, yes. hitting the wall in the background as well it's uh it's very very noir yeah i'll tell you why i love this so much uh, the, the, honestly this is my favorite page of streets of rage so far i'll tell you why it's because not only do we have this wonderful dramatic storytelling that they must have been tempted to skip over this sort of page because it, sure, it really yeah. feels like it's out of like a proper like a, you know an itv drama for your parents or something yeah. i mean just compare it to last issue which was like shops blowing up and guys being shot and drug dens being exploded and then then this is like uh, we're all going to die and we're in trouble I don't know but my wife and child and And despite this adult tone that it has this entire page in fact just so happens to be a setup for the overpowered special move you get in the game where you call in a random cop car covered in missile launchers is it? oh that's amazing (laughs) STC I didn't know that's what it was Is that it? Because this will be based on Streets of Rage 2 now, so is that in there? No, it's not. Good point. But in Streets of Rage 1, yeah, you've got, like, you know, your three buttons on your Mega Drive. You've got the punchy button and the kicky button. But you've Uh got one button that just makes the camera shoot off to one side. Your friend pulls up in a police car, releases missiles, and it takes out everyone on the screen. And it's such an OP move. And here it is in the plot. Here's their friend who gives her a little button to press to call in the reinforcements. Presumably, I love that. That button is going to get hit in part six. I don't remember. I genuinely assume, you know, rules of storytelling. It's got to be. That is a Chekhov's button if ever I saw one. <laughs> Indeed. And then our final page as well. We're in, what is this, like a foundry? A processing plant? You know, where all great 80s action movies ended up? <laughs> Some sort of nebulous industrial plant with moving conveyors and carts yeah. and, and scoops and furnaces and foundries. <laughs> it's the sort of factory where an iron claw can be either scooping out or dropping in bits of coal into a kind of bin <laughs> of coal that's going into a furnace. That's where we are. The kind of place that's populated exclusively by crime bosses. Yeah, yeah. This is just the scene where Hawk wakes up the drugged Max and, uh, and we learn that Hawk was his... Uh, partner five years ago who he busted for corruption and had kicked off the force and then we end with uh, the ninjas creeping along the ledge outside axel's window that's the thing and axel being the one who's in the hospital in the hospital with murphy yes watching over him and it says next issue r.i.p axel what's the name of that book murphy's reading there while he sits at axel's bedside he's reading torment for trixie sounds like a real mills and boone affair with a picture of a gasping lady on the front cover yeah well you read what you want to read murphy i won't stop you no judgment (laughs) No. (laughs) You (laughs) so.
It's news extra this time. Yes, a doubled up news extra. Yes, just basically there was so much Sonic CD news they bumped the rest of the news onto another page. Yeah, yeah. Uh, telling us that I meant to go and confirm this, but I didn't have time to. Uh, Golden Axe three plans to release in Europe were uh, were dropped. Did you check that out? I went on Wikipedia and I couldn't find a release date for the EU. So oh, probably so it never was released in the EU. Yeah, they've they've previously like one or two issues ago advertised the fact that Golden Axe three is coming out and then yeah. yeah no it's already gone that's it it, it seems never to have come out in the uk at all what a shame but one thing's for sure our favorites will be back in a new series in stc soon then we got sega sponsoring another surfing championship and I- i'm glad the news bite on this one says what we're all thinking which is that <laughs> it seems you can't watch a major sporting event these days without sonic or sega popping up I'm more thinking of it the other way around. I can't read my flipping Sonic comic without sports showing up. <laughs> without some sport getting in the way. Football, Formula One, and now it's um, the Sega Quicksilver Surfmaster Championship in France. I mean, they're they naming surfing legends. I mean, I'd like a top prize of £100,000 prize money. But, I know! Uh, <laughs> yeah, you a lot don't, of money. I, I'd take that today. I, a lot of money in 90, them's dollars yeah, but I'd be happy with it now, to be honest. I'd, yeah. I'd, I'd go and surf in order to get 100,000. <laughs> would you? That's a mental image I'm having trouble constructing. Do you know what I'm going to say? I would, starting today, if if it was confirmed that I would get $100,000, I would go and start training to learn to surf now. But be- you have to win. Well, I'm saying there would have to be a guarantee that I, if I started training now, I would win. You just want somebody to pay you yes. $100,000 to train to surf is what you're saying. I'll do it. Yeah. I'll do anything. <laughs> I don't care what it is. I can't, the, the, I can't think of a lowest depth that I would go to for £100,000. <laughs> so there you go. Keep that in mind, listeners. <laughs> Guess you could say a totally tubular time was had by all. Especially the people who got a go on the Mega Drives. That it says there are eighty thousand people able to watch on a giant beachside TV screen provided by Sega, but not unexpectedly, more than a few Mega Drives are on hand, so the crowds can play such cool surfing games as Green Dog, California Games, and the Mega Hot Cool Spot. So, wow, they really dug deep and found out that really the only surfing-based games they could find were either ones nobody really cared about or Cool Spot. So it's a good job they had Cool Spot. I believe California Games was pretty famously bad as well. Was it? I think so. Oh, dear. (laughs) Now, then, the last news bit here is that uh, Sega World was opening in Bournemouth. Now, did you ever go to a Sega World, Dave? This, today, reading this, or rather yesterday reading this, is the first time I became aware that there was one outside London. Yeah. I sort of assumed there might have been one in Japan at some point. Mm. But yeah, it's the Trocadero in London is the famous Sega world, isn't it? Yes. I looked it up and it seems that this changes name very quickly, presumably when they opened the Sega world in London. They, it changes to like mm. Sega Play or some some other thing. I love how it's uh, they describe it here as being broken up into zones. Yeah. It's like they've done a kind of a Disneyland with it, a Magic Kingdom style thing. There's yeah. the Driving Edge. <laughs> with all the simulator games uh the as1 an eight person flight simulator Ooh. zap attack featuring uh shooter games including mad dog mccree oh is that the one that's like a video of cowboys and you shoot them with it a- yeah yeah oh, i've had a go on that live action video sequence i've yeah. played that i played it at the uh at the pier on the isle of wight on a school trip yeah it's in the air it's an ill wind that bodes no good 
Mad Dog McCree and his band of cutthroats riding into town. Even a tumbleweed doesn't dare blow across the streets today. It, no, I haven't. Now I think about it, I just looked at it for a while. Well, it was there. You were in its presence. I didn't pay for it. Whether anybody else was playing it or if I was just watching a demo mode, I can't now remember. But I was I think it was on Games Master and I was very excited about it. The idea of a video of cowboys jumping out from behind buildings and you have to be quick on the draw and shoot them. Yeah. And then it plays the video of them dying. I was very excited. Apparently it was rubbish. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so I've heard. <laughs> Then there was a Sonic Strike bowling. Oh, what a disappointment! Just actual physical bowling with balls. Uh, yeah. I hope the balls had Sonic on them or something. <laughs> I know, right? Eight fully automated bowling lanes utilizing the latest in bowling technology. Has hucking a ball at sticks? Has that technology evolved well, in ways I've not become aware of? Do you know, it makes me think that maybe it had just evolved then because it says fully automated as if we were expecting... Yeah, like there wasn't somebody in the back setting the pins up yeah, for you. Yeah, because... Maybe, I don't know. Because <laughs> the only bowling I've ever either engaged in or seen on tv has a sort of scoopy thing machine that yeah comes down gets the pins them. puts them on yeah so i guess there used to be a person who had to set them up or you had to or something i can truly say i've never thought about it until right now yeah what did bowling used to be like before they had the machines that set the pins well up? i've in one regard thought about what bowling used to be like and that is that i'm well aware of what it's like in the flintstones movie <laughs> so that's a sort of a historical version of bowling yeah yeah the well-known historical documentary the flintstones can't remember how they dealt with the pins in that one <laughs> what else we got here uh the lowdown a unique insight into the future of electronic games including arcade games with see-through cabinets so you can see how a video oh, wow. game works wow 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 so that's like the equivalent of those you know the Game Boy Color that had the see-through case and stuff, so that yeah. you couldn't see anything working. You don't see anything. But you like, could see yeah. that it had stuff in it. Just chips. <laughs> the one thing they describe as the future of electronic games is a game from now, but with just a Perspex cabinet on it. So, like, I know, right? I want to know what they had that was meant to be the future. Maybe they had one of the Japanese 3D cabinets, Virtua Fighter or something like that. Mm-hmm. Other zones include the Din Bin the for din karaoke bin. fans. <laughs> It's very British, isn't it? Yes, it's lovely. Toe Jam's Gang uh, for the under fives. The Amazon, a play area for kids. And I do love this one. The Megabyte refreshments provided by Burger King. Oh, lovely. Oh, well, that's interesting. So if the Amazon is the play area for kids, then that means Toe Jam's Gang is not a play area for kids. It says amusements for the under fives. I assume that meant a ball pit. Maybe about the under fives. That's that's got to be like the safe and supervised area. Whereas the, oh, it'll be squashy toys. The and, play know. area would be probably slides and yeah and, and stuff like that. Rope swings and the like. You know, they call it the Amazon, so it's probably done up like a jungle with oh. rope swings and stuff oh. like that in it. I used to love those things. Remember those? Remember those? Yeah. My favourite one in the world was at Oakwood, a theme park in South Wales, where they had this whole big indoor building full of that stuff, right? You clamber about. And it culminated in something called the mini web. <laughs> in which... You went to the very top level and you crawled out and you were looking over just a shaft, just a vertical shaft. Big enough that it had a kind of a a soft bar along the top and that was enough for like several children to perch on. And all the way down this shaft, at lots of levels all the way down, were industrial belt elastic bands at different angles. So they made a sort of a mesh all the way down. Oh, I got you. And you just 
dropped. And you just boing de doing boing, boing all the way to the floor. Boing. And of course, there was a big soft bouncy castle type floor. A, inherently by itself a wonderful idea and incredibly fun. B, directly mm. resembled a scene from the Super Mario Brothers movie that was also out that year. <laughs> Good catch, home, Mario. I should try out for the Yankees. I'd high-five you, but then you'd be an only child. I was <laughs> over the moon. Hog heaven. <laughs> no, the centerpiece of the one I remember was um, one of those big uh, vertical slides, you know. Oh, yes! And then curve at the very bottom. Oh, but uh, I was the- never brave enough. Did you go on it? Yeah, I did, you know, oh. several times without incident. And then one time it all went wrong. Oh, where, no! um, My shirt rode up as <gasps> I went down. Oh. So I got a big, a big friction burn down my back. Oh, no. I mean, I yeah. sort of assumed they would make you go down on a mat. Funnily after that, the next time we went, yeah, they had sacks yeah. you got in. Not saying I was responsible for instituting change. but uh. <laughs> Do you know... The mini web was still there when we went back when I was a teenager, and I th- did you go on it? Well, <laughs> there were no children, so the guy let me go on. Brilliant! And I went on, and the very first time down, my ankle got snagged up in between several crossing elastic bands, and I was just hanging upside down <laughs> with all the blood to my foot being cut off, and I Brilliant. just couldn't do anything about it. And so that was it. I didn't go on again. Help! Help, please! It was my burn up the back moment. Another Q&A special in the Q-Zone this time. We got ToeJam & Earl, Sonic, Sonic 2, Moonwalker, Chuck Rock, the Lotus Turbo Challenge, and a section for Master System games this time. Lots of questions. Nothing much to remark on, though. Although they do have to print a retraction here. Yes! This is so interesting. Because they uh, they messed up the level select for uh, Sonic 2 on the Mega Drive. Yes, apparently. I'm surprised we didn't see this because 1965-917 is a code that is quite recitable, much like the up, down, left, right, A star. Well, never owning Sonic 2. I wasn't burned into my memory oh. like up, down, left, right, A star. Well, it is to me. So apparently they accidentally printed it as 1965-719. What rot. Absolutely <laughs> incorrect. Yeah, we just just as an example of the sort of thing, it's questions like, um, I'm stuck on the Death Egg Zone on Sonic 2. When Robotnik gets into the large robot and fires his arms, I can jump over them, but they get me on the way back. Please help, says Ben Bickford of St. Leonard's on Sea Sussex. And they, and they do reply. And things like, um, I've just borrowed Moonwalk on the Mega Drive. I'd like to know if a level select cheat exists for it. And they, they reply, and not Mega Droid, by the way. This is just... Yeah, this is Q-Zone guru Dave Gibbon. Says, um... After a long search for you, Jonathan, I found a level select and shooting stars cheat, and he, and he starts describing that. Um, the Toe Jam and Earl one is, I'm having great problems with Toe Jam and Earl on the Mega Drive. Do you have any help or cheats? I cannot find any key press cheats, Kathy, but I can give you some Game Genie codes and general tips. And I'm reading this and I'm going, how did they find these cheats and tips in those days in order to print them? Because now you just Google them. Easy. Easy peasy. But back then, where were they coming from? I don't know. I mean, I doubt they had someone in the office who was like an expert in the games. Were they phoning up the Sega helpline or something? I don't know. Yeah, you remember those? That's a screen cap from Toe Jam and Earl 2, by the way. Whoops, Daisy. Looks good. Looks real good. Toe Jam and Earl 2 was great. Loved it. I am going to have to play it because I never have. Wonder Boy in Demon World Part 8 Written by Mark Isles Art by Boyan Dukach Letters by Steve Potter With the help of the liberated captives from Monster World 
Shion fights his way through the deceased Grimmermen or Grimermen or Grimomans demon soldiers and leads everyone back home. Baylor invites Shion to return to Fisherton with her, but he's already preparing to move on to his next adventure. What is there even to say? Uh, this truly is just the epilogue, isn't it? It's just like yeah. the demons who turned up at the end of last issue attack Shion, but yeah. then the, the prisoners that we saw who were all turning back to normal after Grimmoman's death last issue help him, they beat him, they leave... That's it. They leave. They they just leave. That's that are they just they just leave. Here's a bit I quite liked at the end of page two. The uh, the raven shows up and goes. We'll see Grimmerman's like no more. Ghastly, grim, and ancient. Nevermore. And this is like an attempt at doing a nevermore. It's a, yeah. it's a bit annoying to rhyme more with more. But Wonderboy just goes, "Do shut up, Raven. Cheer up." And I think it's about time someone had a go at Ravens. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they've had it too good for too long, Ravens. They have. <laughs> Hanging around on those chamber doors and just being all grim. I like the bit at the end of page three where they run past the shame N from previous hey. issues. And, you know, one of the patrons or maybe one of the workers is, Everything all right out there, Drum? And Drum, who we met before, is just, He grab him and we trust. <laughs> he's got no idea what's going on. He just assumes that the boss man has it all in charge and he's quite willing to let it happen. More and more jobs worth. Just, uh, <laughs> he's a wonderful sort of weird uh, demon small business owner who's just not interested in getting involved in the problems of government. And then, unless I'm mistaken, is this Schwarzenegger back alive? Yeah, Schwarzenegger alive again. He didn't kill him. He just knocked him out with his sword in that one issue. There was a flash of light and then they were were lying there. Well, they said they would be back. They did say they would be back, yes. They weren't lying there. (laughs) No one leaves Demon World without the correct travel visas in triplicate. Being in triplicate, it's just kind of a comedy punchline for paperwork scenes, isn't it? Yeah, it's just a bureaucracy joke. Just a bureaucracy joke. But then it turns out, you know, I I don't know if it's because literally three people then appear in silhouette behind Shion, and maybe that's the payoff to the egg, or maybe that's just a a fortunate bit of visual comedy, but it's like Schwarzenegger quickly back down when they realize Shion has uh, substantial backup, and they uh, dump him and the the slaves straight back into the village. And uh, they've rebuilt it, so all that burning down that happened doesn't matter anymore. Yeah, um, I mean, well, this is we see old Kevin again, who old was Kevin, in, who yes. was in, what a weird ass name, who was in issue two, and he has, as Cheyenne instructed him to do in that issue, gone to the Queen at Alcedo, and she sent workmen to fix the village, and then uh, Byla, who helped Cheyenne get away from Fisherton, and who I believe Cheyenne told to go to the village and see Kevin, is here waiting for him. She's clearly got a sweet spot for him, invites him to come to Fisherton and stay, but like the littlest hobo, Cheyenne's just got to keep on moving on. <laughs> Some part of me fixated on the fact that these people are rescued from Demon World and they go, oh, home, we're home. I never thought I'd live to see Monster World again. You're like, oh, yeah, they live in Monster World. Yeah, Monster World. You just escape Demon World and you're back to Monster World. You know, Hooray! poking the eyes, better than a king of balls. But, <laughs> but yeah, no, uh, Shion has heard from the workmen that there's some ghost trouble in the Skyrock Mountains and he's ready to move on for Wonder Boy in Ghost World coming in ooh, about 12 issues time. Okay. Yeah. Um. So there's. Re- I mean, apart from that humorous bit, there's not. It's just they just they just get out, don't they? They just get out and go home, and it's it just sort of it just sort of sputters to an end. Well, I think what we've got here is an artifact of the fact that um, the Wonder Boy comic has only ever been given four pages to play with, and but so- the fourth strip will always only ever have four pages, and there would be so many more better examples of four-page storytelling. Than well. This. 
I, I look forward to seeing it. The problem is that when you've only got four pages, four pages is like, there's no real way of doing a climax to an adventure story and making it satisfying in four pages, unless mm. you have the first page be the defeat of the bad guy and all of the rest of them be yeah. the, the wind down. But they, there's no real way of doing that satisfactorily. So they were almost sort of forced into coming up with a, a fairly bolt-on yeah. afterthought episode here. Somehow it becomes an exercise in filling four pages. Somehow. Yeah. That's Wonder Boy. And it's easily the weakest thing STC has served up so far, serial-wise. Wasn't it a strange one? It was a strange one. In the middle, it just, it had, there were some nice, there were some curiously funny high points in the middle, weirdly, that, that, um... Oh yeah, I don't hate it. I know we, we're a bit down on it, but, but I don't hate it, but like... No, I don't hate it with a burning passion or anything. Like, yeah. It's just that, had we been children at the time who cared about this game, this comic would have been very frustrating as, an, yeah. as the adaptation of Wonder Boy in comics. <laughs> like, certainly everything else that Sonic the Comic has done yes. has been faithful to the story of, or, or very faithful in the spirit of, or building upon and improving the yeah. ideas of the games. Whereas this is a very unimpressively cynical approach to a cutesy little Japanese adventure game that's not interested in telling us... That's, it's not even that it doesn't, it's that it is so tangibly not interested in being that yeah. that it even makes jokes about not being that that's the kind of rubbish edginess where it's like oh 13 year olds won't care about cutesy little japanese adventure games you know better put some demons in it with spikes and wings and uh, claws and magic and you can stab people <laughs> and you can make jokes about how his name's stupid and it's like no engage with the material on its own level guys you you, you misstepped severely with this one altogether it's misjudged and unfortunately there'll be more of it yet <laughs> All right, well, uh, we'll look forward to that. Shall we have speed lines? Yes. <laughs> speed lines. There's a letter to Tales from Aww. Stephen Harper of Luton. Why do you let Sonic boss you around? Why don't you stand up to him and say, I'm not a little kid and I don't want to be bossed around anymore. <laughs> I, I adore this response from Megadroid. I'm afraid that Tails has declined to reply in case Sonic gets to hear about it. <laughs> <laughs> okay alrighty then quality well my favourite's gotta be the top right hand one from Bobby Irving of Darvel Asia I do remember this do one do you well, you remember it the yes. first time man? dear STC my grandpa reads each copy of STC to me and wants you to know that he likes Tyrus Flair of Golden Axe very much <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah you're super sega sonically bobby irving well that's lovely and megadroid says don't worry bobby i'm sure your grandpa will grow out of it the tyrus flare crush that is <laughs> yeah. i'm sure he will oh i love that oliver cass from sunbury on thames middlesex proves that he was on the ball uh, when he writes in to say in the picture of sonic with his girlfriend amy rose the expression on sonic's face looked like he didn't want a girlfriend quite right oliver oliver knew what was up <laughs> and megadroid of course finds a way to spin it by insinuating that oliver may be attempting to drive amy into his own arms <laughs> i doubt oliver appreciated that response <laughs> Uh, what else? There's only one left, so might as well read it. Dear STC, I'm writing to your magazine. Oh, hey, I completely am on board with this. Absolutely, I am yes, writing. Must be talked to about. your magazine about the way that Sega games are priced. Nearly sixty quid for a Mega Drive game. This is very expensive. I'm only ten years old. I get one pound pocket money a week. How can anyone expect me to be able to save up sixty quid? It takes me forever. Yeah, ex I agree. He's completely right. But and you know, this is the funny thing because. I remember that that's what games cost, uh -huh. but 
Every single review zone I know. thus far has told me contrary. I know, they're like thirty nine ninety nine. They're all so 30, 40, some of them 20 even. I mean, we had the news about the re-releases issues ago that were going to only be 20 yeah. quid. I don't know. Yeah. I don't really get it. What was 60? Street Fighter was 60. Well, I'm sure of that. I mean, look, not all of the games in the review zone have been the sort that you would actually want to buy. I seem to remember finding out that Sonic 3 was originally about 60 quid when that came out. Of course, that's not out yet, but if that's in any way an indication... We'll find out. Mark it in the margins. We'll check it out when the time comes. Surely, if console games are aimed at children my age, they should bring prices down so we could buy them. If they were more affordable, more games could be sold, and surely Sega would make a bigger profit. I think STC is brilliant, and the price is just right. I may not be able to buy a game regularly, but at least I can buy your magazine when it comes out. You have the right idea. Let's hope Sega catch on from alex fruin of ooh devises oh. after look up how you pronounce that wiltshire i did look it up i think it's devises but they're all robot voices so who knows mega drive and game gear owner sonic water fun game winner yeah what a clear thinking chap you are alex says mega droid ever thought of becoming a droid how do other boomers feel about this problem let us know well letting you know now mega droid yeah it has been and was and remains ridiculous how expensive games are and of course it's now there's a slight difference which is that now there's a vocal group of people online who will jump to their defense and say that like you know how much work is put into these games it's got to be released for that price to pay them all quite right i agree with that I think they shouldn't be this big. I think we should go back to 16-bit games and sell them for 15 quid. Well, triple <laughs> A gaming, not my scene. A couple of bits of fan art on here today yes. as well. Um, a behind-the-scenes shot of um, <laughs> yeah. what's going on here with Sonic and Tails in... Uh, well... Cool dude, East 17 style, backwards baseball cap, shirt, peace necklace, trainers. Yes, I wonder if this is an, an outfit that, you know, Will Smith ever wore or yeah. something like that. It's that sort of thing. Uh, but then Sonic over here is in a flared collar and platform shoe versions of his sneakers. This one's from uh, Lee Harrison in Retford, Nottinghamshire. He's gone glam rock. Yeah, yeah. I never really understood art like this, but boy, oh boy, if it would not be typical of the pictures that we would come to see in Sonic the Comic. <laughs> Well, coming next issue, Freddy Takes Fright. Freddy Takes he Fright? Takes, yeah, he takes Fright. I mean, Freddy, Freddy Takes Flight, surely. But whatever they meant, he took it. <laughs> Jason turns to jelly, Pinhead goes pop, Chuck D. Head is coming. New Decap Attack, it's all a horrible joke. Oh, that's a great tagline for Decap Attack, actually. <laughs> so, yeah, you'll find out next issue, readers, but Decap Attack, it's a horror-based comedy comic, and, oh, it's... I'm looking forward to reading it's it again. so good. I'm really looking forward to reading it again. Plus, Sonic faces the power of Megatox. Oh, cool, yeah. And I'll tell you, I debated with my friends at school, what will Megatox be? What powers would he have? What would he be? You know, and we did not guess what the end result was. <laughs> <laughs> with Streets of Rage, Kid Chameleon, and lots more, Sonic the Comic 10 on sale Saturday, October the 2nd, 95p, barf bags extra. <laughs> We're about to enter double digits. Issue 10. Yeah. And they've got look at that little, little asterisk in there next to the 95p and say barf bags extra. The continued growth of Sonic the Comics. Asterisk culture. Love affair with the footnote and the asterisk. <laughs> right. 
So that was issue number nine, another big turning point in the history of Sonic the comic with yeah. more to come. Uh, next time we'll be back with issue number 10. If you want to follow us in the meantime on social media, I am Chris McFeely on Twitter and on YouTube. I am Dave Bulmer. That's Demon Tomato Dave on YouTube and Twitter. Talk to your news agents to reserve your copy of the next episode. And if you want to hear me talk about sort of animated films and Disney stuff, then I have another podcast called Serious Disney. But as for STCTP, our opening theme is Synchronized by Sonic the Comic The Band who you can find if you go to sonicthecomic.bandcamp.com This has been Sonic the Comic The Podcast and we will see you next issue. He is not evil. He has merely been enslaved by Robotnik and didn't want to do this. He had to do this so he exploited that... Uh, exploited? <laughs>